how are you getting on, John? How are how are things with cocooning and yeah, all of that? Yeah. I'm I'm good, John. Um, I'm very lucky because um, a lot of what I can do, I can do from home anyway. And uh, I have two cocooning uh, parents in over the walls that I have to keep an eye on. Right. So, 94, and she's nearly 90. So I'm just uh, you're just it's it's a very um, stressful time from that point of view and that you'd, you'd always be concerned when they're at that age you know and, and the, you know the sadness of watching people pass at this time you know during this whole COVID-19 thing uh, to the whole stress of it I think really you know Absolutely and it must be difficult for older people as well to watch you know all of the conversations and listen to all of the conversations uh, which tends to be about nursing homes and that kind of thing you know which is well, the, Yeah well I mean the paper's getting well yeah exactly I mean that's that's one interesting comment that you would make about it all right. I mean, I, for years, I've, I've always taken the view that if you can stay at home, stay at home. I mean, and certainly with my parents, uh, you know, if they were given the option of going to hospital, going to nursing home or staying at home, they'd stay at home. And for those people who are lucky enough to do it, you know, it's, it's, it's good. You know, so from their point of view, that's certainly something that they're very happy about insofar as, you know, they're happy to be at home and, looked after at home so it's probably a big argument now for you know funding going towards more home care and I think there was a kind of a, a general uh, kind of view out there that there should be more funding available for that so I mean I'd be all on for that and you know I mean it, it's, it's kind of leads you into you know, I think as I've often said to you when you're looking as a lawyer when you're looking at things like wills and enduring powers of attorney you never really think of it uh, at a certain age of your life or in certain circumstances, but certainly as uh, a result of this COVID-19 scenario, people will be looking at it an awful lot more closely. So it, it's interesting because when people are talking to you now about doing enduring powers of, of attorney and you're talking to them about, you know, decision-making around where and what kind of care they should have and decision around what kind of treatment they should receive and whether or not they should or should not sign, you know, an instruction for people, they're much more open to that. Funny, I had a, an interesting question put to me there by somebody there recently by email where they had gone into hospital, an elderly person had gone in on their own, well, I called them elderly, they were 70-something, but mm. they were also actually asked whether or not they would sign a form. And when they quizzed on what the form was, basically a non-resuscitation mm. instruction, yeah. which, which kind of leads you into, I know that you've had different people talking over the last number of days and weeks about, you know, the aftermath of all of this and, you know, the, the implications for us. And I heard Alan Kelly there, you know, talking about the financial implications. I thought his comments were, were interesting from that point of view in terms of, you know, when he was talking about the insurance scenario and setting up a state kind of scenario. Uh, the indemnity, of, yeah. And indemnity scheme mm. now, I mean, there are huge political decisions that need to be made. You know, mm. you'd like to think that people that start forming governments so that you can actually start thinking about those mm. things, you know. But, I mean, you've got all sorts of things that are going to emerge in the legal kind of context. I mean, you know, you know, people looking back, as I was saying to you there last week and the week before, you know, people looking at back with the benefit of hindsight and the whole area of law. And, you know, I mean, people are funny as somebody... Again, by email because we're we're all online almost now at this stage. But 
somebody coming in going when they extended the lockdown I mean it's, that's funny but it's not funny if you know what I mean mm. they went out for their 5k walk but uh, they were saying that their spouse wasn't able to go out for the 5k walk because when it was the more strictest 2k scenario they started they were walking down a laneway and tripped and fell on the laneway so the the question that was asked well, first of all, the, the spouse said that uh, Trevor Shane, they couldn't do the 5K now, but they can't even do the 2K because of this incident. And what's the liability situation? And has the liability situation changed because of COVID-19? Which, uh, you know, kind of leads you into the question that when you're looking at, you know, I mean, you and I have often talked about the various, well, that's what I'm supposed to be talking about, to you, the whole legal side of life, if you mm. like, but... I mean, the whole area of the liability of a local authority or a roads authority, when you're talking about, we've, we've often talked about potholes. Yeah. And in this particular situation, it was a pothole type scenario. And I suppose the answer to the question is, first of all, or the answer that I gave to the question was that it's not an easy question to answer because, first of all, it depends on, you know, how that particular pothole stroke trip hazard or slip hazard or whatever you want to call it, how it arose and, you know, the whole area of misfeasance and non-feasance. Um, and when you're looking at that one, uh, you, you may, again, my point, Sean, for the Latin misfeasances and non-feasance, non-feasance not to do something at all, and misfeasance to do something and do it badly. Mm. And way back when, you know, the, the legal area, this particular legal area comes from UK English law where you couldn't sue the Queen or the state and that found its way into Irish law and was actually reversed uh, when we became a state in our own right uh, but it didn't change this age-old principle of misfeasance non-feasance so the answer I had to give to the person was number one first of all we'd have to check out on why that particular hazard was there and if the if the hazard is as a result of, let's say, the local authority, if it is a local authority laneway, which I couldn't say for sure, but if it was a local authority laneway, as in it was managed by the local authority, then under those circumstances, you'd be asking mm. the question whether it was just simply wear and tear or whether it was poor design to start with, of or whether they did some repairs and they didn't do them properly, you know. So. And, and that notion that uh, Alan Kelly was coming up with there, the, the indemnity insurance, mm. the, the, the government would uh, step in in some form. Would you see uh, in, in the coming weeks and year, years, I suppose, um, mm. a, a tsunami of of litigation uh, due to COVID-19. Mm. I mean, if I, oh, I, think, yeah. I... You know, I mean, if I go into a shop and a uh, whole load of people are infected in the shop and, yeah. you know, it it, 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 mm. it damages my work and myself and... Uh, it, like, uh, do I have a case there, for example? Well, there, yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's, two, there's two kind of ways of starting to look at that question. The first question is... You know, is the law going to change or are we going to apply the same principles of law? So your starting point is you're going to apply the same principles of law. So if you're going to apply the same principles of law, you're going to apply that kind of umbrella term which we use, which is negligence. So if, and I noticed that Alan was talking about recklessness, which is a completely different criteria, if you like, but I think your starting point before you'd explore the, the question as to whether or not you need to give state indemnity 
is whether or not there is a need to give state indemnity. Because if you're in a situation, for example, now, I mean, just double back for a second and look at what they're doing in terms of bringing us back into the work environment and look at whether or not they are regulating us going back into that work environment. And the answer is yes, they are. And the fact of the matter is that every employer out there has to be aware of the fact that we have existing, and this is answering your question in a different context, but it's the same answer. There is already a framework there to deal with health and safety. So, and if you are in breach of health and safety in your work environment, either in the context of employees or in the context of somebody coming on to the premises, you know, so in in those circumstances, you have on the one hand, you have the health and safety issues, which is governed by the health and safety executive, which has powers to deal with literally directive powers and preventive powers. So what they can do is the HSA can come in, look at your work environment and say, hold up a second here, you're not complying with the COVID-19 protocols. Because we now have, and as I've often said to you, there's different sources of law. There's statute law, which is where you, you go and look at it in the statute. And a lot of what uh, is being done throughout this crisis is to introduce statute law. So they're introducing laws I was going to say left, right, and center, but you know what I mean? They're introducing laws now, and the the law that they're talking about is they're introducing protocols for people to return to work. So if you are in a situation, and this is where the danger is, if you know what I mean, because there's there's something else that kind of comes into the equation when you're looking at this from a legal perspective, because before you start, and this is probably the end point, or the starting point of Alan Kelly's point, i.e., if you don't have access to um, compensation, call it retribution, mm. call it whatever, if you don't have have access to that because the person that you are looking to take, look for that redress, in other words, we call them the defendants, but mm. the other party, the shop owner, the, the employer, you know, the, whatever environment you're looking at, if that person ha- doesn't have the wherewithal to compensate you, all the rights in the world, all the legal principles in the world, and the fact that you can prove your case, and the fact that there is negligence, and the fact that there's statutory breach, and all that, is at nothing, because you can't recover. If you can't recover, it's a bit like having, you know, can I use the analogy, having a gun without any bullets, if you have absolutely no value. So the reality of it is that you must, first of all, arrive at the point where you determine that that is in fact the case, that there is no value. Then you put in a a state-funded scenario, if a state-funded scenario, but you're a long way off, I think, from getting to that And would you explain the the notion of indemnity where the government would be concerned if if that were to come about? What what would that be exactly? Would they pick up the tab, essentially? Essentially, yeah. What, What you would look at there is you would look at you know, what has been done in a number of situations where you're looking at uh, state, uh, tra- the state claims agency will manage the scenario. So they will look at, so for example, you know, all the abuse trends that were dealt mm-hmm. with, they were, de- they were dealt with through a separate and independent system outside 
proving your case and proving going through liability and and it was just a question of assessing the the value of the claim. It's it's kind of analogous to a class action uh, management, if you know mm. what I mean. Yes. We've often talked about in the states where you would appoint somebody who would literally decide on the level of compensation, the category of compensation, the class of people that were entitled to compensation, and then would decide on the numbers, and then the tab would be picked up in the case mm. of class actions. The tab is picked up by the industry involved. But I mean, one of the one one of the warning things that I would say to you about this whole scenario that we're looking at here is that people need to be extra vigilant. I mean, there's all the there's there's you know there's quite a lot of media discussion about how people aren't complying mm. with COVID nineteen and how they're not you know dealing with the situation and they're ignoring it. Uh, and, well, I mean, and again, it's, as always, it's going to be a limited number, and it, it can be ignored out of pure innocence. It can be ignored deliberately. You know, there's all sorts of reasons that it might be ignored. People misreading what the protocols are, are etc. But if you were if you were going back, and I've been asked this actually, we did a. a uh, coffee morning last Friday morning in the office where we weren't in the office we were all remote mm. uh, but we did a coffee morning and I, I asked them you know a general discussion you know who would like to go back to work and who would like to stay work and work in his home you know what I mean and by far the vast majority of people would like to go back to work because they're missing the social interaction of it and the various other elements to it you know but and <clears throat> even though we're, we're fairly techno on the way that we do things, you know, we're paperless and things like that, so we don't have the problem of having to go into the house to pick out, pull our paper out and bring it home with us, if you know what I mean. But one of the things that kind of struck me after we had discussed it was that if you look at the requirements that they have put in place for a return to work, they're basically asking, and this obviously in every organisation this applies, you have to have a lead worker representative who literally is there a bit like a safety officer who's there to ensure the implementation of the COVID-19 measures. Mm. You have to look, you have to train people on COVID-19. So in other words, and this is where you see to a certain extent, guys like me, lawyers would have a field day on this because if you look at the requirements they've set out, they've set out you have to do training for people. You have to do a pre-work form has to be signed by them. You have to update your safety manuals. You have to have a log of everybody in the office. You have to have a plan in place in the event of a suspected case of COVID-19 happening in the workplace. If somebody has symptoms, you have to immediately put them into isolation. You have to get them out of the workplace in a way that's designed to keep them isolated. And then you have to do an after-action risk assessment on it. And then you have to... And they're all the other... You know, this is not taking into account the other obvious ones, you know, the physical barriers... And and for small businesses, John, and for, you know, certain types of businesses, that that would be virtually impossible to tick all those boxes, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, it would be. But you see, see, the question here is that, and this is where you, you know, where you started with the question, you know, where where are we going to go with this in terms of, I mean, as it is, there are inquiries coming in, you know, about things like the landlord's, What's my position as a landlord here? What's my position as a tenant here? What's my obligations to pay, uh, you know, the rent? What, mm. what are the rent review provisions? What are the terms of the lease? And people suddenly pulling out and looking at leases. I mean, 
the other one that has, has, has become very, very much, and you've seen it in the news as well, is the banks literally to, uh, having offered, made a loan offer. They then withdraw the loan offer looking for further proof in order to to, to give them. Now, there's a certain common sense response to that insofar as that you have had a reduction in salary and you have taken on a mortgage. I mean, common sense, you would hope would prevail insofar as it doesn't make sense not to adjust your circumstances somewhat. And I mean, there's in, in terms of conveyancing, there's a, there's a whole adjustment in the market marketplace now in terms of if you were looking at something before COVID-19 and you're looking at something after COVID-19, you know, the price differential may have to change if there was a contract in place, it's enforceable there isn't a contract in in place well then it's not enforceable because again, one of your most common principles of of purchasing land or purchasing property is that you must have a note or memo in writing in order to have an enforceable uh, contract. So that whole, I mean, and again, I've no doubt that that will raise its head. I mean, the other one that's coming in is queries on, you know, insurance. Uh, and obviously there's the whole business interruption insurance, which brings me back to, I hope I'm not in the list of talent because uh, I was interested when you mentioned insurance as to what you say about it. But mm-hmm. the, the thing about the whole insurance thing is that before you start going into the state covering it, you have to look to insurance companies coming. Yes. Funny, yeah. I was looking at a situation there myself, personally, and so far as you may remember there a while back, I had a little bit of a bump on the road, and I only pulled out and was looking at my payments, and I suddenly realized that I'd been, I had permanent health insurance since I turned 28, 27 or 28, and I'd been paying, I was paying this premium, uh, for however many years that is, we won't go into the numbers on it. But at no stage have I ever made a claim against it. So, you know, to a certain extent, I would empathise with the argument that insurance companies, insofar as, you know, it's, it's a very easy thing for insurers now just to argue that well, look, this is a very novel situation and it's not something that we should have to pay for. Yeah. But if you think of all the situations and all the payments that, that we would have made, I mean, business interruption insurance, you know, that other one that mm. we were talking about there a couple of weeks back, that business interruption insurance, I mean, again, that's something that a lot of people have had on their policy for quite a number of years. And, you know, it's, it's going that, that, that particular one is going to be a serious fight because... Absolutely. Well, you know, they're, they're fighting each individual case, seemingly, oh, if, 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 uh, if anecdotally is, is true, but there you are. I'm, yeah, I'm out of time, sadly, John, because yeah, there's loads no more I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. Um, and next time around, we'll pick up on all of that. Is that okay? Okay. Good, a, good to talk to you, John. Thanks all very much indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.